Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to The Kyle Serafin Show. Today, we are going to have a wonderful interview. Well, I hope it's going to be a wonderful interview. It might just be Steve just being furious. We've got Steve Baker on, fresh off his appearance on The Tucker Carlson Show. He is the pragmatic constitutionalist, formerly the pragmatic libertarian. He's a podcast host. He's an independent researching journalist. He's a musician and uh, and a father. But uh, he uh, he's also a target of the FBI, it turns out. So uh, just sort of continuing what we do here, exposing more stories and malfeasance of the FBI. Steve, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your story. Thank you, Kyle. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I think we're going to get into a bunch of uh, wild things, uh, including uh, what happens when the, the FBI knocks on your door, which I've usually been on the other side of. Producer Phil has been on the other side of. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to do a quick uh, word out to our sponsors, who is uh, sponsoring our program this month. We're going to say thanks to Patriot Coolers, Patriot Coolers and PatriotCoolers.com. If you'll visit their page, you can get 10% off when you do the promo code KYLE. That's spelled K-Y-L-E. Keeping it real simple. If you need a tumbler, if you need a mug, I'm not asking you to go buy something you don't need, but if you do, check them out. They keep things hot. They think keep things cold. Uh, you can check out their great products. They've got great colors, patriotic packaging, and a seriously fair price. They are more affordable than some of the bigger names, but they're probably made in the same factory. In fact, they told me sometimes they get the wrong product sent over. So go figure out how that goes. I've got my uh, my hot tumbler, tumbler right here right now. Uh, you don't have to pay for a name brand that's not going to add anything to your life. Get something that supports disabled vets and the Kyle Serafin Show. I've been using them since 2017. We started using these on surveillance, and my wife's been using it for quite a while in the minivan. Uh, check out their rotomotive coolers. They're soft-sided coolers. They can keep ice cold for days, just like a Yeti, just like an Arctic, except it says Patriot on the side, just like you. Support your country, support our vets, support the show. It's promo code KYLE for 10% off. If that was a do, we'll do it without any four more. We're going to go right into it. Steve, uh, you live in North Carolina, but you came from Louisiana. Is that correct? That's correct. I have uh, been, I was born and bred in Louisiana. I've got a healthy uh, heaping dose of Cajun in my blood, but I have been in North Carolina for 30 years uh, this year, as a matter of fact. Well, long enough that I can understand everything you're saying, which exactly. is not really the case for people from Louisiana. I actually lost my accent. Uh, I, my first touring job as a, as a full-time musician was with a band that traveled internationally. And they early on asked me if I would be the actual uh, uh, MC for the band. I was only 19 years old. And so I would walk, I was a trumpet player and I was always on the back line, but I would walk forward and I would do the introductions and that sort of thing of the band when it came that time of night. But they said, but you've got to lose that accent because we toured internationally and the interpreters overseas couldn't understand the old the dialect. And so I, I Midwesternized my approach a little bit in my dialect. Yeah, that's that's a thing that people did for a long time. My, my dad's from uh, Rhinelander, Wisconsin. And as you probably know, people from Wisconsin have a certain thing about their voices. You yeah. never know that. But my my dad also spent 30 years in broadcast and, uh, you know, did radio for a long time. And one of those things you got to learn how to get rid of if you want to. Yeah, be that's poet, exactly yeah. right. And you got that good grovelly bass. Do you sing too or no? I do. I, I'm a lead vocalist right now in two different bands, uh, apart from being a, a trumpet player. And then just before COVID came to town, I had actually launched a David Bowie tribute act. I was actually pretending every night to be David Bowie on stage. So that was that was a thing. That's a thing in and of itself. That's like a whole show that we could do about the David Bowie tribute, I'm sure. 
Um, you've got a couple kids. Yeah, they, um, my kids are my kids are grown. My son is an insanely gifted musician. He's got ten times the talent I ever wished I could have. Uh, he's he he takes out his uh, musical frustrations on uh, guitars uh, mainly, mm-hmm. and then my daughter, uh, I, I she she has one of those jobs that if I told you what she did, she'd have to shoot me. Um, mm. If that, uh, and that's about all I can say about it. That's all you need to say. Then we know about yeah. those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, as I used to tell people when I worked for the bureau in Washington, DC, they'd ask what I did. And I said, I'm a secret agent for the FBI. And they'd go, um, I think you mean special agent. Special agent. I said, no, everything says secret that I work on. I'm pretty sure I'm a secret <laughs> agent. And, uh, and they didn't understand it and people in the bureau didn't get it. And that's why we didn't get along as much as I wanted to. Cause there's, an, there's not a lot of sense of humor that's going on. And, uh, you experienced some of that. It sounds like as well, how yeah. long have you been doing the kind of independent journalist thing and, uh, and and running down stories that you thought were important. Well, I have been in the music business my entire adult life. In fact, as I said, my first full-time gig on the road was 19 years old, traveling all over the world with that band. Uh, And then I have performed not only with a variety of different types of musical acts, but I've also been involved in the music uh, industry as both a promoter, uh, sometimes a um, uh, artist management. I've actually managed a couple of major label acts uh, in my career. And then about uh, 20 something years ago, I I started jonesing to to actually get back into the performance side of thing after a lot of years in the business side. And, and I actually, I actually started taking private lessons again at at 39 years of age uh, on trumpet, just to relearn how to how to get my chops back and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I have been performing as a full-time musician for the last uh, 20, 21 years uh, as my primary source of income. But for about 30 years, I've been writing. Now, I was writing before that, and a lot of the articles that I would write at the time were music business uh, stories. And then with the advent of CompuServe and AOL back in the early 90s, I started testing the waters uh, at my political acumen because that was I've always been a political junkie. And so I started doing that sort of thing in the chat rooms. And then, of course, AOL became MySpace and then MySpace became Facebook and Facebook became a blog. And and there we go. And then on uh, in mid-March here three years ago, 2020, the government, I like to say, weaponized me against them because they took my job away from me for over 15 months. I wasn't allowed to work. I wasn't allowed to earn an income. And so I took my hobby, my passion, my sideline passion, which was political commentary and and analysis is what I was doing. I used to say that I used to write about the stupid stuff other people did. And now I'm doing the stupid stuff. But the the point being is, is that I suddenly had all of this time on my hands because of the lockdowns. And I just decided for the first time to monetize uh, what I was doing. And it, it became I, I, I literally told my followers at this point, I had tens of thousands of, you know, uh, Internet uh, social media followers. And I told them I'm moving that part of my brain to the captain's chair now and I'm moving the um uh, the music side of my brain to the co-captain's chair. And so that's what I've been doing since, since COVID showed up. Yeah. I think a lot of people had just a wild life transition then. And some of it, uh, some of it, I, I guess goes against what the government wanted, but it's, it's their own fault for what they created in, in that situation. Uh, how long ago did you launch the podcast that you do? 
Well, I, you know, I don't have a regular podcast, but I do, you know, I do special shows, uh, interviews and things of that nature. And and that happened obviously during the lockdowns as well. So it wasn't, you know, I was probably two or three months into the realization that we weren't going to, not going to be allowed to go back to work for some time that I bought the podcast gear and, and started doing that. We have very similar gear as people can see. If you're watching our rumble show, you'll see we're, we're using the same mics. we got the same headphones. Uh, it's kind of the thing you grab, right? Yeah. So- yeah. All right. So they they pushed you into a seat where you were going to be doing more journalistic activities, even though that wasn't your gig. And um, and it became your gig in that way. Yeah. Uh, the music business is kind of a left leaning corner organization. How do you sit as a politically? You said you're a libertarian little L to me just a moment ago. Right. Um, you know, how did you evolve politically? And because even at a 19 year old kid running around with a bunch of bands, I would have to imagine that's a little bit more on the left than than generally speaking. Yeah, but even back then, I, I, I'm 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 probably the elder statement and uh, statesman in this group right here right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been around uh, a few more decades, maybe. Let's say it that way. So I I started playing professionally back in the '70s. So I'm giving myself away there. And when that happened, we didn't care about politics in that manner. I've been a political junkie since I was eight years old. I remember on the playground, third grade, arguing with my classmates about whether it was going to be Nixon, Humphrey, or um, uh, oh gosh, now I can't believe I'm, I'm blanking uh, the the uh, Alabama governor at the time who ran as the third party guy. But you know who I'm talking about. the The point being is is that we were we were doing that sort of th- I was doing that sort of thing uh, at a very young age. So I, I was I was always attracted to politics and i was always a voracious reader as a child and and politics for some reason just really fascinated me but particularly you know history the history of politics and uh politicians the famous american heroes and the founders that sort of thing so i was drawn into that early on and then when i started my musical career a lot of that began out of church, you know, so it was a lot more on the Christian music side of things at the time. So there was a lot more, particularly growing up in Louisiana, a lot more conservatism uh, influencing the, 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 the world that I was moving in. But having said that, growing up in Louisiana at that time, you either registered as a Democrat or your vote didn't count. So it didn't matter how conservative you were. If you were going to have a vote that counted, it only counted in the primary. Because a Republican had no chance back then in the the, the old Dixie South, as it was at right. the time. Right, right. So, George so, Wallace was the name we were looking for. George Wallace, thank you very much. I can't believe I blanked that. That's okay. um, that's, that's how this, I even uh, I even ran the, I even ran the Leonard Skinner song through my head trying to uh, see trying if to I catch up where it is. Yeah, you can't do that on the fly. It doesn't play. Right. So, so moving and progressing from there, I began to find out that I had a lot of problems with just the establishment uh, uniparty system as, as it has basically become now. And I remember having a conversation in the mid nineties uh, with a caller from, you know, fundraising uh, robo, it wasn't a robo call, but somebody called me from the GOP uh, doing a fundraising call. And I had been donating to candidates and that sort of thing. And at the time, whoever was the um, uh, head of the RNC at the time, I said, I'll tell you what, and I was really, by, by 95, 96, I was really frustrated with the Republican Party. And I said, 
you put him on the phone uh, and I will, I'll give you a thousand bucks. He gives me five minutes, five minutes. I give you a thousand bucks. Well, they actually tried the fundraiser. I think they probably get commissions for, you know, the, 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 the guys that get on the phone and call right. uh, for what they raise. And so he tried and but they never got on the phone. And so I never uh, contributed to the GOP again. And then something happened in 1998. I went to a financial conference in Aruba, a little Island of Aruba off the coast of Venezuela. And guess who was the keynote speaker, a guy by the name of Ron Paul. And everything changed at that point. You just so, got Phil's uh, thumbs up over there. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> you perked up. That's his guy. He's got a picture, I think, with both of the Pauls. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. That's one of his proud moments. And he's got some with his brother there, too. So you were in Aruba. You got to meet Ron Paul. And did you have conversation with him or you listened to him? No, speak? I didn't. I didn't get to have I didn't get to meet him. Just uh, saw uh, saw his address. And I and everything that he said resonated with me. And obviously, you know, he was a uh, elected congressional member of the Republican Party. But I knew he wasn't one of them. And he helped clarify in my own mind why I wasn't one of them either. But <laughs> subsequently, I came home and went to a Libertarian Party meeting, the first time I'd ever been to one. And it was uh, we were pulling up, I think, on the 2000-year the election cycle. So I went to a meeting where all of the North Carolina state candidates were there giving their little two cents in at this, at this particular meeting. And at the end of that particular session, I went up to the state Libertarian Party chair and sat down next to her and waited my turn to to give a you know or just to meet and have a little conversation and i asked her i said what do you think of of ron paul and she goes oh my gosh she, she, he's my hero and i said well why don't you guys do the same thing that he's doing and take your message into the game because you're obviously not in the game i was calling right. at the time the 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 1% club cuz that was about the degree of of effectiveness that they had ever had in any uh, one particular election, and that's coming so, off like uh, that's coming off what Robert uh, Ross Perot coming in and basically got one yeah. percent. That's the best they've ever done in a presidential, I think. Yeah, yeah, and of course Ross Perot got nineteen percent in ninety two, and then nine uh, percent again uh, with Dole Clinton in ninety six. Yeah, so he did actually and, better than that. Yeah, yeah, Ross Perot. Uh, well, I mean Clinton won the ninety two election with less than forty three percent of the vote. And that was because of what Ross did to the elder uh, Bush. But the point being is, is that I asked the state party chair, well, why aren't y'all following the model there? I mean, he's in the game. He's playing. You're not. And she said, oh, no, no, we, we're just, you know, we really have to focus on building the party. And so I never joined the party. That makes it's sense. Complicated than that. Yeah, that makes total sense. And uh, and it's also kind of a frustration, too, because there's a it seems like a missed opportunity in that for, I don't know what, ideological purity, something to that effect. It, it is. And and that's what has been my ongoing frustration. I, I always call them, you know, my they're they're my close cousins. And I do attend Libertarian Party events on occasion. I've been invited to speak at Libertarian chapters around the country. And I have done that. Uh, they know that I'm a friend, but they also know that I have a. Um, uh, you know, I, I have, I have a problem with the, the, 
I have a problem with the methodology is what it is. I've always thought that they would have been better organized as a disruptive association rather than a party. And when I say that something like the, what we called the tea party was never a party, but it was a disruptive association that had a viable and, and measurable impact when, uh, you know, it was 2010 ish when that, that whole thing erupted. And I've always tried to convey that that should be their MO is to go at, go at politics that way, be disruptive, go in and threaten the local GOP or democratic candidate, whichever one it is, and let them know you're either going to uh, yield on these two, three, four issues, whatever. And, and if that's the case, because in these particularly these tight races now that we're seeing that are being won either side by a, a half a percent of the vote, the Libertarian Party could come in and negotiate and become an influence over the agenda. And by the way, you're either going to stick with us on these three or four issues throughout your legislative uh, four years, two years, whatever it's going to be, or we're going to bury you next time and we're going to go the other way. Mm hmm. And I've always thought that that would be the better way to get them in the game. Of course, otherwise, take the cream of their crop, the best voices that they have. And they do have some genuinely good voices. But the most successful that we have seen, we, we saw um, Gary Johnson. He was a governor, New Mexico, vetoed more bills than any governor has ever vetoed, I think, in the history of the United States. I think he, during his eight years, what he he vetoed seven, 800 uh, bills. That was phenomenal. If he did nothing else other than just kill legislation, because have you ever known of any legislation that promoted our extended freedom or protected freedom or uh, gave us anything back? <laughs> that, know, is or, the, that is the libertarian position. It's like, just stay out of my business. I don't need yeah. more laws. In fact, I'd love it if Congress spent all their time just cutting laws. There's enough of them. They could probably cut something every month or so. And, yeah. uh, and we'd be in great shape. They could just, yeah. you know, reduce some of the, uh, the log jam there. But but Gary Johnson basically swept himself into the dustbin of history when he left the GOP. He could have kept the same philosophy. He could have stayed in there and he could have been an effective force. Uh, Justin Amash did the same thing by leaving. Uh, and and I, I could comment on what I think were his mistakes all day long. Although I love the guy, Thomas Massey again, is showing us the way it should be done as one of those guys on the hill. Uh, obviously, Rand Paul is my current Capitol Hill philosophical uh, twin brother. Uh, I, a spirit I, animal. Yeah, oh, he, he he absolutely is. Has been since he's been there. Fair enough. So with that being the background that you're looking at, they've moved politics into the driver's seat for you in March of 2020. And we're not going to get two weeks to slow the spread. As you found out, we are going to have however long it was going to be, 15 months, it sounds like, took you right. out of your day job. And so you started, you know, getting more involved in this thing. What made you, first of all, what, what were your initial thoughts about attending January 6th? Cause obviously that's where we're going to go as far as how you yeah. got involved with dealing with federal law enforcement. Um, what made you decide to go and did you have any sort of uh, concerns or hesitancy before showing up? No, I, I had no concerns whatsoever. I'm not a riot chaser. I don't, I don't do that thing. And, and, and of course, even here in Raleigh, North Carolina, we had, the significant problems with the BLM post George Floyd death uh, riots here as well. I mean, they destroyed our downtown, uh, destroyed the infrastructure and, and the economy downtown, just those riots alone. And I, of course, followed them. And I was I lived as the crow flies a mile and a half from the state 
capital. And I just sat on my front porch with my laptop and I had all of the local channels, uh, live streams pulled up on my, you know, my tabs on my browser with my, uh, rifle sitting beside me in case they came my way. And that's, that's, that's what I did. Uh, and I watched the helicopter shots and the street shots and uh, all that was going on in those riots during that time. They never came my direction, but the, uh, the concern about January 6th wasn't there at all. And, And, the, the the reality is, uh, if we go back to the political for a moment, is that I have never been a Trump supporter. I very antagonistically campaigned against him and wrote against him. I was I was in 2016 a hashtag never Trumper. In 2016, I was also a hashtag never never Hillary, which drove me for the first time in my life. I actually in a in a um, national election voted for the Libertarian candidate, which was Gary Johnson, of course. And then when 2020 rolled around, I had, because now we had a track record from Trump. And of course, uh, I know they don't like to hear this wasted vote argument. Uh, I know the my friends in the Libertarian Party don't like that, but the reality is it is true. And I had measured and I had scored Trump for his four years in office now as about a 50-50 on my own personal libertarity, liber, uh, liberty scorecard. And I had Biden at about a negative 15. So I had no choice but to pull the lever for Trump. Uh, and when I, when I actually wrote my article, it, it finally admitting, confessing, however you want to say it, to endorsing Trump. My The image that I used for my article was the old Hollywood squares. Do you remember that? It was the tic-tac-toe with the, you know, tic-tac-toe. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll take the, 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 the Trump square to block. That's not a ringing endorsement, but nevertheless, that's exactly what it was. It was a vote to block the Biden administration from coming to being, which that was not successful. So my intention for going to January 6th was as a reporter, I brought my camera, my tripod, my, uh, I had that little man on the street microphone, you know, that you wave around in front of people's faces. And I, after the, the, the speeches at the ellipse, I was going to post up somewhere on, on the cap. I knew that there were other things scheduled at the Capitol. There were marches, there were other rallies. There was another stage that was at, at the Capitol grounds. There were so some permanent events there. Is that, is that right? Like that's what I'm oh, understanding too. Oh, absolutely. There were, there were, uh, there were eight different permitted events. Now this is the important thing permitted by the United States Capitol police. Mm-hmm. I saw the actual permits and the signatures from USCP leadership while I was sitting in the Oath Keepers trial, because I was there every single day for all nine weeks of the first Oath Keepers trial. So I saw that evidence uh, brought uh, brought forward. So yes, there were permitted events or had been announced uh, uh, that it had been announcements and flyers and internet uh, uh, postings about additional events at the Capitol. And of course the president did make reference. He said, we're moving over to the Capitol to peacefully, you know, make our voices heard. That's what he said. And Myself, I was there with another writer from Raleigh, a uh, writer of some esteem, but he he, he would rather I not <laughs> mention that he was there. Yeah, and uh, although the FBI does know already, because in my interview, they they asked me if he was there. So, well, I couldn't lie. Right. So no, but uh, you can decline to talk to them, which we may talk about in a second. I think yeah, that's, we, one, we'll, those, we'll, that's, we'll, that's one of those strong moves that a lot of people feel very uncomfortable doing. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll tell you why I did later on when you bring that up. So, but what ended up happening is we left the speeches we, we left less than halfway through Trump's speech to go ahead and get in front of the crowd and go ahead and get down to the Capitol. Number one, it was insanely cold with, you know, 25, 30 mile an hour wind, winds whipping through there and uh, just having a nice brick, brisk walk to the Capitol at that point was going to feel good. So we started moving towards the Capitol. First thing that I noticed all day, and I, with all the videos that I took that day, uh, there's never a single law enforcement officer ever once comes into frame. Now, we're in the, the nation's capital. There's not a park police. There's not a metro police officer. There's not a, 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 a United States Capitol police officer that ever enters my camera frames until I'm actually on the West Terrace of the Capitol. The entire time that we were at the Washington Monument lawn, not a single cop. The entire walk, the mile walk over to the Capitol, not a single cop. It was not until we basically reached the reflection pool, you know, near the Peace Monument there on the west side of the Capitol, mm -hmm. that we could hear the sirens arriving. And then I look up and I can see the yellow, the fluorescent vests of the MPD officers coming down the stairs. And then we saw smoke and then we heard the first flashbangs. And I looked over at the other gentleman I was with and I said, that's where we're headed. And so we broke out in a trot and went straight to the West Terrace. And were, that's were you marked in any way, just out of curiosity, or were you just carrying your equipment? No, just carrying. I had a backpack with all, everything in it, and that was it. Mm -hmm. Okay. You weren't pulling the Antifa thing where you wear like a helmet that says you're going to riot, but also it says press. So you don't get arrested. Well, that one. I, I wore no riot gear whatsoever, whatsoever, but the most interesting part of my first realization that something was wrong here were the credentialed press photographers on the front line of the West Terrace battle line in full riot gear. They look like war correspondents. You know, they had their vests on, they had their helmets on, they had gas masks and they were there on the front line before the president ever finished his speech. So how did they know? That's my first question of the day. It's the first thing that crossed my mind that day. How did these guys know to be there in full riot gear to capture what was happening when a mile and a half away, the president of the United States is, it's like, wait a minute, he's over here. What are right. you doing here? And the distance there makes it about a probably 25 minute walk, probably for most people, if not longer for, for uh, it, who are not stepping it out. Yeah. For a couple of healthy guys like we are, uh, myself and the other gentleman, we we were we were hoofing it, man. We were enjoying the bra uh, the walk. We both of us are in shape, and we we made it very quickly. But for the average, uh, uh, rather rotund, overweight, forty percent uh, body fat, you know, average American, it's a it's an hour walk. Now, that was your first question. Have you? come to some answers over the the past two years, uh, or maybe even during the time you were standing there, did you come to some answers about how they figured that thing out, um, speculative or otherwise? Uh, if, if we're talking about the photographers themselves, there are some logical reasons why they might be there. Uh, for, first of all, some of these guys, they, they carry their own equipment bags and that gear is just part of their, their bags. All right. So it's not unusual for them to have that with them. Some of the guys that were there were, in fact, actual war correspondents that they 
this is they've they've got the the resumes of having been overseas and been in Afghanistan and and other you know hot spots around the world. Some of these guys, though, uh, seemed and and I I do everything that I can from my own investigative mind, and we can talk about where that comes from too as well because this. this this didn't just happen in the last three years. I have some history there as well. But the point being is, is that I saw people, including those photographers, that were completely out of place. And they weren't there accidentally. And, you and you, you know, you just you have that gut instinct, you know what I mean, that you have to go by. Um, my dad was a was a private investigator and he had the profiler's gift, if you know what that is. He used to find uh, his specialty was missing persons. And he was often hired by, by, you know, down here in Louisiana and Texas by these rich oil billionaires that were having, uh, you know, domestic crises in their children's home. And they, you would have the the husband or whatever would disappear in a, with the, the child and they would run off to another state somewhere. So you had those types of uh, domestic uh, kidnapping type situations. And my dad would end up picking up the cases of for finding individuals that either the FBI was not really looking for, or uh, they didn't find, and he would find them almost immediately. He just had that profiler's gift. And so he picked up a lot of cases like that. And so the uh, point being is that, is that with that instinct kind of genetically encoded in me, I saw things that didn't make sense at the time and began to ask a lot of questions. And my first article that I wrote, it was a, you know, it was a 9,500 word screed. It was, it came out one week after the the event and it, and it was simply entitled what I saw on January 6th. And I just told the narrative of this beginning of my day till the end of my day and what I saw with at, asking questions as well. Now, by the time I wrote that first article, I had also had time to do frame by frame by frame analysis of all my videos. And that was really what began the, the question asking process, because, you know, your brain in a highly kinetic situation like that can only take in so much unless you're just trained. Maybe these maybe these trained riot chasers and war correspondents, maybe they can. You're saying no. The no, point I don't think so. Human, well, beings, you, human beings. So there's there's a you know, once the sympathetic nervous system kicks in because you're yeah. in the the scenario where you're going to have to deal with some survival possibilities. And that's what yeah. happens when people start spraying CS gas around and yeah. things like that, or rubber bullets or flashbangs. Um, everybody's mind narrows to mission tasks. You know, sure. Your mission and, task and, is not going to be investigative what's going on. It's going to be no. like, how do I not get hit in the head with one of those things? It, it, no, and you're you're exactly right. Because what I started doing was I started aiming my camera in one place, and then I would watch the cop that had either the big tank of of spray or the the rubber bullet guns or the uh uh flashbang grenade launchers those side so i'm keeping my eye on them and yet even though i was keeping my eye on them and nobody ever targeted me because i was never a threat i was never doing any violence i was always handling myself as professionally as i could possibly present myself in that as a as a um a photographer at the time is that I was never targeted, but in that wind and the splash, I got, I actually got hit with some of that spray. It's not anything I ever want to experience again. So that I became, as you said, I became very, very, after that first time I got hit, became very focused on where it was coming from. And so I just letting the camera do its thing and I'm 
the survival instinct kicked in. Uh, I got hit by a flashbang one time. Uh, it, it landed. It was I was back in the crowd at this point. And uh, as you have probably seen the videos, some of the Metropolitan Police officers were actually launching those grenades over the battle line and into the more peaceful, as we call them, the peaceful protesters that were just watching what was going on at the time. Sure. And and one landed about three or four feet off to my right, exploded. Trapnel hit me on the side of my leg, and I carried a bruise there for several months as a result of that. So um, probably would have been worse if I had not done exactly what you just described there is, is took on a different stance uh, mentally. But But the point, again, being is that when I got home and started processing the video, then I started seeing the stuff that caused me to write the second article, which was came out about six weeks later. And that was entitled who was up the chain on January 6th, because now I'm looking at who was behind this thing. Sure. The, uh, the riot police that were out there on that day, you mentioned them firing grenades over the top of the crowd and into the rear of it where people were hanging out. And they were obviously just milling about, they were not involved in trying to tear down fencing or anything along those lines. Um, did you see, did it seem to you that they knew what they were doing, that they were going to get a positive result of dispersing the crowd or was it doing something else? No, uh, the, for, first of all, uh, the, uh, let's start with the, uh, the, the tear gas. Uh, it was totally ineffective in the winds uh, that it was. It, it would disperse immediately. Why they continued to even try that made no sense to me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. The, the pepper spray, after I took the first hit that I got, I knew I never wanted to ever have that happen again, but I saw individuals walking right up to them, standing there, staring in them in the face and taunting them for a direct hit. And they would take, I got it on film. I've got it on my own video camera guys taking direct hits and just taunting them afterwards. Right. Well, there are small percent. There's a small percentage of people that actually have a resistance to capsaicin Wow, these burning agents. It's the same thing. I used to have a, uh, I had an instructor that would take CS grenades and he'd put them in the pockets of his, of his uniform. And he would walk into the woods when we were training and he would let them off in his pockets and then just stand there and (laughs) watch everybody run in all directions because he had a resistance to CS. Now, if you put CS in front of me, that the tear gas in a non, you know, windy environment, I will literally have mucus coming out of all my you know, my eyes, my nose, my face, I'll be, you know, drooling and retching and all the things that people do. So uh, the people that reported being kind of like choked by the gases that were down toward the tunnel. And I've been in a lot of Twitter spaces with these folks that are, you know, J6 types. And, and they were like, you know, they were killing us. And it's like, no, that's just, it's a choking agent. It's not, it's not tear gas. Tear gas is a, is a misnomer. It's a choking agent. It's CS gas. And, and it's really awful. And luckily for you, you, I guess it sounds like the winds were there because if they started lingering over the crowd, it would have been very nasty. Uh, but it sounds well, some, like but something weird happened there is I felt like because of the limited amount of uh, the effect that I was experiencing because of the winds that I was, in fact, developing some sort of I was just getting used to it, maybe to a little to, to, to a certain extent, because when I actually then went into the Capitol building and there was a huge release at the uh, house chamber doors at one point. This is that that famous scene where the guys are inside and they've got the, the they've got the, the furniture turned over and, you know, the 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 the. the um, uh, uh, plainclothes cops have got their guns aimed at that door and you can see one guy's face through the broken window and that sort of thing. And yep. 
Well, I was on the other side of that door, but about a hundred people back and I was up against the wall and I was videoing this scene. And so I, I had, I had always, while I was in there, I was always trying to get up and back and away so I could video what was happening. I wanted to get the, the, the people that were engaged in whatever they were doing, whether they were the accidental tourists or whether they were uh, doing property damage or whatever they were doing, I wanted to capture that in my camera. So I, I was, so at one point I was moving to try and get a better position and above the the crowd which was jam-packed trying to and people were up front pounding on that door and they're chanting you know whose house our house usa they're singing all these uh, all this craziness that was going on so i turned off my camera for a moment and i was positioning into another area to get up and above and then all of a sudden i hear the screams of tear gas tear gas and that and thankfully i was off to the side because it became a stampede the other way and by the time they cleared, there's this green, thick gas hanging right in you. Now I'm 20 to 25 feet from the main entrance into the U.S. House of Rep- Representatives chamber. You can't even see the door because that's how thick the gas was mm-hmm. at this point. And people are still running out of it. And there's a, an actual photo that came out the next day uh, in Market Watch. And you can see me walking as people are walking away from it. You see me walking dead into that green cloud. You can see my backpack. You can see my tripod coming out of my, uh, the back of my backpack and I'm walking dead into that green cloud. And it, it, for some reason, it just didn't seem to bother me. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's awful stuff. So <laughs> good on you, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, you can even find uh, tear gas and, and even pepper spray afterwards too on on things like metal. It'll stick around. And my buddies, mm-hmm. you can always tell where there's been a riot when you go in. We've done some, yeah. you know, some post uh, surveillance and areas like that. And you'd go, um, "What's wrong with that railing?" And my buddy would go, "It's spicy," you know. And you go, "Like, <laughs> I don't want to touch that at all." So you walked into it. You watched people clear yeah. out. Was this the? Was that the actual space where Ashley Babbitt was eventually shot? No, it was. It was. Out, it was at exactly that moment, though. Uh, by the by the metadata on my camera, uh, which I learned later, is that she basically when that tear gas was released, it was on the other side of the chamber from where she was. The speaker's um, entrance into the uh, chamber was on the other side. And and by my uh, as I said, by my camera's data, it was basically right at the moment within 30 seconds or so of when she was shot. Interesting. And I wonder why that, why they were trying to retake that, but, but it was effective at least to clearing people out of there. Oh, it did. Yeah. Was there, was there a sense from being in that crowd? Sometimes when you're in a crowd, you can tell people are just moving because they're moving. There's an excitement, there's an energy, there's a, a direction. Was there a, was there a plan to this crew or were these people just banging on doors and making noise? There was no identifiable plan while I was there watching it and filming it myself the plan began to develop after I started doing the frame by frame analysis of my video, you began to capture those who were obvious professional provocateurs that were in the crowd and they were there. I mean, there's, there's just, uh, I, I will never be convinced otherwise they were there. Uh, I don't know who they're working for. I still don't know. I don't have the, I don't have the smoking gun or the, you know, the, the absolute proof. And I don't care. I don't care if, I don't care if Trump himself hired them. I don't care if it came from orders from Pelosi, if it came from Merrick Garland, if it came from uh, some dark money, you know, dark group in the FBI. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Or the Russians or the Chinese. It doesn't matter. Yeah, to me, right. Like you were just observing what it was. And yeah. um, and 
And I'm interested in hearing more about that because you seem like a very sane and sober voice in this. You don't have a lot of emotion one way or another, which is the way that I want people to talk about these things, because that's the only way you're going to find out what the truth is. And then you get uh, a lot of these people, they have a vested interest in it being somebody in particular. And it doesn't sound like you you just said you don't care. It doesn't sound like you have an interest in it either. It doesn't really make a difference to your uh, to, to your outcomes of your life, whether it was any of those groups or none of those groups and somebody else completely. Is that... Accurate. Yeah, as far as identifying who was behind it, uh, it, that does not matter to me. I am passionately engaged in the process of discovering who it was, though. That's fair, because it was something you witnessed, and obviously we're hearing a counter narrative, which is to say, this was a bunch of proud boys, a bunch of oath keepers, whatever it was that were out there causing this. Um, all right, so let's. Um, and I didn't know you were we were going to talk about any of this stuff. But that's why I like doing this. I kind of like to know who I'm talking to, but not in all their story. And I, I think. I do myself a disservice if I find out too much about what your story lay me out some of the groundwork of why you believe there were professional pr provocateurs and the coordination that you saw that indicated in your mind being a astute observer and and somebody who's not involved in you know there's no outcome that you're looking for on that day you're just capturing film and yeah. looking to uh, to be just uh, an independent journalist showing what did happen not you know what you wanted to happen it sounds like well I made a video the night of January 6th from my hotel room with this other journalist that I was there with. And it was, we, we poured a couple drinks, a couple of stiff, stiff drinks. He had, he had, uh, he did not go into the Capitol. Uh, in fact, he got hit seven or eight times from the downwind, you know, splash of that pepper spray. And he just got the heck out of there. So he pulled back and got away. He wasn't filming or anything. He was just watching. So he got, he got, got away, got up when got at a distance and just watched what was taking place, did not go into the Capitol. He eventually went to back to his hotel earlier in the, I was, I never left until after the curfew. I was, I, I stayed in the area, uh, till well after dark. Uh, we, we had this anticipation that Antifa was going to show up after dark. And so I wanted to be there to capture that if that happened and it didn't. So, uh, I got back to the hotel probably eight or eight 30, uh, in Arlington and we poured a drink, I turned on the camera. We sat down in front of it, made a quick, uh, about a 30 minute kind of a postmortem on what we saw, what we'd experienced. I was pretty ra rattled by then. And, uh, we uploaded it that night and I made some false observations uh, or what I, because of what I thought, I, again, I had not seen my own video yet at this time. So as we were describing the crowd, I clearly described it as a pro-Trump MAGA crowd that was doing the damage, doing the violence and was causing the mayhem and the problems. And that's what I said. Uh, he, he challenged me a little bit and said, you don't think that there was any other uh, group that was there. I said, yeah, there, there, I, I don't think that I don't think it's possible that there weren't some infiltrators from maybe left uh, wing groups or that sort of thing. But I, it didn't even it didn't even enter my mind at the time that there might be some other elements, maybe government elements or embedded agents or, of, of any kind it had not just hadn't gone there yet that came in uh, after i started looking at my my video it also came in because as you know where i live i'm right next to fort bragg and i have a lot of friends down here that are in the uh special forces community and as i began to show some of them my videos they were like going what's that <laughs> and then they would describe for me the behaviors and that sort of thing that 
it really kicked in the the investigative juices and i started asking questions and started going further and further and further my february 24th article of 2021 which you know i published was it six or seven weeks after the event itself i actually had by then identified the fact that there were elements from the u.s marshals embedded in the crowd as plain clothes undercover elements as well as a special ops group out of Fort Belvoir, which just happens to be the most elite and secretive signal intelligence group in all of the U.S. Army. And that's where they're based. And I learned that they were there also embedded in the crowd that day. And where did you learn that? Wow. <laughs> that's one of those sources that you can't talk about. Okay. This is one of your sources. That's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So, and, uh, and did you identify them in your video when you were looking at them as well? You're like, okay, no, this is obviously. No, I, I never just, identified them in my video. Although, this is background information you were getting. Yeah, although in subsequent videos, I have identified individuals that just by, as you know, by their gait, by their training, the way their their heads are on a swivel, the way their eyes are moving around, the way they carry themselves, their interactions, the signals, the hand signals, that sort of thing, you knew that they were they were elements of some professional organization. Certainly, when I say professional, they uh, everything about them, you know, that was just screamed pro. Okay, fair enough. Um, any possibility that these people were just veterans who had a lot of experience? We got a lot of people with OEF, OIF type uh, backgrounds. Could they have been people that had just were buddies that were also had done some things other places? You think, or you think that their motivation was specific? Well, I, I actually I actually uh, gave them a lot of grace in my first articles about this because I also I, I, I genuinely believe that they were sent to be there in case things got out of hand so that they could bring an end to it or to take care of business, as it were, uh, because the level of professionalism of the the ops that I know that were there, the, the spec ops that I know were there, uh, were the kind of individuals that if 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 the MAGA guys pulled firearms, it would have been over with in seconds, mm -hmm. if you know what I'm saying. Sure. And, and so I reported that, I, I wrote that and published that on February 24th of 2021, and it was January 5th of 2022 that Newsweek came out with their article with a big headline that said, very specifically, special operative or special ops from the U.S. Army with shoot-to-kill orders were in the crowd. So they confirmed it 10 months later. And I think there was something they were talking about how HRT had actually been somewhere in there. The FBI's hostage rescue team yes. in the area. Oh, and I don't well, know if they were under plain clothes or not. I actually don't know enough about what they did on that day. I know that there was a lot of standby uh, yeah. groups. Yeah, that they had they had standby groups stationed all over, but there also were elements already in the Capitol uh, when the when the crowds arrived. And and I I actually captured the ATF um, the tactical units coming up the stairs uh, in the area where. Ashley Babbitt was shot. I've got that on video. Now they either were called in. I don't know how close that they were waiting or, or that they were positioned uh, before deployment uh, directly into the Capitol building, but I actually captured on my own camera, their arrival on the scene. And this was in clearly marked ATF police is what they're, they're, um, you know, they're was on their That's plates. And then, and then immediately after that, I was the last person probably to see Ashley Babbitt a lot, last civilian anyway. And that's a whole another story. But I, I was uh, uh, in the lower level of the Capitol 
there were no pro- protesters there at the south entrance whatsoever. And as I've told this story many times, I was just looking for a restroom. <laughs> I had been I had been at the Capitol since 9 a.m. and it's approaching three o'clock at this point. And uh, I needed a, a facility, a men's room. And I asked a U.S. Capitol police officer, I said, is there a is there a restroom anywhere, a public restroom? And she actually responded. She goes, no, I don't I don't usually work in this building. She said, but uh, you're welcome to go downstairs. And I went, OK, so I went downstairs and was wandering around by myself. There's nobody there at all. And I'm just looking, I'm, I'm wandering the halls, looking for a restroom, can't find it. And all of a sudden this, this young, very petite female Capitol police officer grabs me by my right arm. And she says, sir, can I safely lead you out of the building? And I looked down. I mean, literally had to look down at her. She's so short. And I said, uh, do I need to be safely let out of the building? She said, yes, sir, you do. I said, okay. I didn't resist at all. And so we started to, the long walk down this hall towards the south ent- uh, entrance exit uh, door on the lower level. And she asked me, Kyle, this was the most bizarre thing in the world. She asked me three times, sir, do you, do you feel safe right now? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. Now, her, her hands were trembling, by the way, the whole time. She's trembling on my arm. And then we got a little closer to the door and she said, sir, do you feel safe right now? I said, yeah, I'm good. So we're about now 15 or 20 feet from the door itself. And she says, again, sir, do you feel safe right now? And I stopped in my tracks and I said, I'm fine. Do you feel safe right now? She said, no, I don't. And then I heard the commotion to my left and I looked down and the FBI tactical unit and their medics are working on who I learned later was Ashley Babbitt because they had moved, carried her downstairs away from where the crowds were. And they had her position at that doorway. And so I am looking down at her, but I don't know it's a her. All I see is jeans, shoes. Uh, the, the, the chest was covered in blood. And then the hands of the guys working on her were obscured that it was a female. And, uh, and so I looked back over the Capitol Police officer and I said, is he shot? She says, yes, he is. I said, who shot him? She said, we did. I said, why'd you shoot him? She said, he pulled a gun on us. Well, fog of war, the sure. confusion on their radio. In fact, I heard, I, I actually, on my camera, I can hear their radio chatter calling for triage and all these other things. So it, it was crazy, you know, uh, when this happened. And um, she didn't know. She had no idea what had happened. Uh, She thought it was a guy, too, for that matter. And right then, as we're having this conversation, the EMT unit arrived. Uh, They bust through the door with the gurney. We had to stand back and let them in. And then as soon as they got in, then she takes me to the door and she said, please be safe. And I said, you know, you too. Well, uh, you know, what goes up must come down. What comes in must come out. So (laughs) obviously what I saw and I saw the gurney come in, I walked down the ramp and then came back around and posted up right there at that door. 30 seconds later, the door kicked open. 30 seconds after that, the gurney comes out, full tactical units. She's got, you know, rifles uh, and they're and they're working on her feverishly. And then I I I'm I'm so close. I just start following the gurney down the ramp. And then after we got uh, uh, past, I think, the second or third support column, I saw her bare chest. And I went, and you can hear me on my own camera go, holy shit, it's a woman. And because you don't, you know, you don't expect that in battle, right? No, that's surprising, especially yeah. with the information you've just been given, right? 
Yeah. So I followed her the rest of the way till they, they disappeared off into the vehicles that were parked there. I didn't even know at the time that I was actually in the only surviving police barricade that had not been breached at the South entrance. They still had the bike rack up and I was the only civilian standing inside that barricade. There are Capitol police and metropolitan police officers walking past me, not saying a word to me because it was obvious that I was acting like a professional in my own behavior and I was no threat at all. So they allowed me to capture this. And as soon as I did, I, I walked out, I moved the barricade and, exited. Uh, and, uh, that was the end of my time in the Capitol itself. Just for people's kind of, uh, mental picture, kind of the theater of the mind piece of it. Uh, what are you dressed like and what does your camera rig look like? Uh, it sounds like you're not just filming on an iPhone, which is maybe, yeah, no, I was, I was, I was, I actually I had the, you know, I had the iPhone and I had the, uh, uh, you know, the, the little gizmo thing that you, uh, what, what are they, what are those things called? What's that? they like a gimbal or one of the, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I had that and, and I had, you know, spare battery pack and everything. And, and so, um, my, even my backpack or my tripod that I had, my backpack was set up for the camera, for the, the cell phone. Uh, I didn't, didn't want to carry a lot of extra. I didn't just, I just didn't expect this. I mean, obviously if I'd known what was going to happen, I'd have come prepared for it. I, this was the way the day developed was beyond my uh, comprehension and expectations. I'm, I'm sure. I think that's the case for a lot of people. And what about clothing wise? What were you wearing? If you I was were wearing a, a, a black jacket, I had a, um, a kind of a, a light red, semi almost pink uh, Yorktown uh, uh, hat on Yorktown, Virginia. And I had uh, jeans, uh, boots, and that was it. Okay. Um, but not obviously one side or another pick. You're not, you're not wearing team colors out there. Nope. You, you don't have a flag sticking out and they let nope. you, when you were behind that police line and you said people were kind of letting you go, were there people on the other side of the police line that were still lined up or is this yeah, game- absolutely there? There were, there were protesters on the other side of the, uh, the police line. Okay. So you're inside sort of the safe zone for the police, which is why they're running around behind you. And yeah. Okay. And there, and there was no battle going on on that side either. The, the battle, because this was, she came out of the building of the South side. She was carried out of the building. And by the way, on the cam, on my camera, you can hear me say, uh, uh, you know, holy shit, it's a female. She's not going to make it. Yeah. I knew, but I saw her in her eyes. I'd seen death before. I knew that she was gone at that moment. And, uh, and that video has been used in documentaries and HBO documentary, New York times, news services all over the world. And, uh, um, that was my first time to become a photo journalist, <laughs> which I'm not, but I became right. one. But, but they got to credit you for it. Right. And, yeah. uh, yep. and, and so that's, that's an interesting kind of move for me. So that moves you into the journalist category. You're there legitimately capturing news in real time. It's being used by what they would assume are, you know, legitimate mainstream news sources. Right. Yeah. I gave um, it, I gave it to uh, CBS that night. They had, they were running that video that night. Yeah. Was there pay involved in that at all? You don't have to uh, say yeah. how much if there wasn't. Okay. That's good. So, so you're now paid as a photojournalist in this, this realm. And at some point after CBS is using it and the others, um, the federal authorities are going to want to see this as well. I imagine. Was that what brought them to contact you or was there something else that led them to your door? No, uh, it's a, it's a bit of a journey getting there. Okay. As well, because I was not contacted by them until August. 
So from January 6th till August uh, before I ever heard from them. And I, uh, in, in full disclosure, I went into hiding for five days after January 6th because I was not going to come out until I had my story written. When I get my videos processed, when I know what I think I saw, when I had my story published, I was going to come out. I actually went and went into hiding at uh, I two different special forces operatives guys here in this area. Um, and they said, oh, yeah, come on. You'll be fine with us. <laughs> and so that was that was my goal. I got guys like that, too. They're good people to have in your corner. You know, turn the phone off and uh, just just stayed uh, secluded until I finished my task. Then I came out and phones are back on back on the Internet. I am traveling again because I was doing, I was trapped during the lockdowns. I I toured 28 different States meeting with, uh, uh, all of my, the followers of my blog, that sort of thing. So I was doing meetups all over the country. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got back on the road again. I just just resumed my normal activities. Uh, obviously very focused on what was happening in the news at the time. As you can imagine, I saw the arrests that were taking place. I actually began to hear of independent journalists that were being contacted and arrested or at least the very least interviewed by the FBI. So I, at, uh, I'm, I'm using my credit cards everywhere I went for, you know, hotels, food, and uh, otherwise other expenses. So I'm not hiding from anybody. So I just anticipated at some place, somewhere, sometime, whether I was in Texas, Oklahoma, or, or Wisconsin, that at some place, they were going to pop up one day and and say, "Hey, we want to talk to you," or "Hey, uh, you're coming with us," whichever the case may be. Yep. And it didn't and it didn't happen. Not for, not for a long time. <laughs> What's that? Not for a long time. Yeah. So I ironically had a meeting one of my one of my meetups from my blog followers scheduled just outside of dc in a a suburb virginia suburb of dc on a i think it was a a friday evening and thursday morning before that meeting i get a phone call 10 o'clock in the morning hello this steve baker yes it is hi i'm special agent doss with the FBI. And my first response was, well, what took you so long? And he chuckled. He said, well, you know, we've had a lot to do. We've had a lot of things. I said, okay. So he said, Hey, uh, look, I see that you're going to be in, uh, I think it was Reston. Uh, he said, I see you're going to be in Reston tomorrow night. And I was just wondering if you were going to be there earlier in the day, and maybe you'd have a couple hours where you could sit down and talk to a couple of our guys and, you know, tell us about what you, you saw there in, in January 6th, that sort of thing. I said, I said, yeah, actually I would probably have a couple of hours. The only problem is, is my attorney won't be able to be there. And he went, Oh, oh okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, we can, we can schedule that for another time when your attorney is available. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's do that. I said, why don't you go ahead and give me your number and I'll have him contact you. And so from that point forward, I never spoke to them again, except through my attorney. And, uh, I'm gonna I pause did right there. I'm going to yeah. pause you right on that. Ladies and gentlemen, that is how you do it. That's the right answer. You can be polite and insist on an attorney. There's yeah. no upside to doing this on your own. And a lot of people don't do that. I've been talking to a lot of people that have not done that. And they all have the plan in their head. If that's the plan, like that's a great plan you executed. 
And the way you said it was perfect. So it's yeah. polite and it's professional and it tells them exactly what they need to know that you're represented and they need to go through them. And that should tell them the way that they proceed from then on out. So well, well and, done. And, well done and let me, and let me also say, and I've, I've advised this of other people as well, even if you don't have an attorney yet, that's still the answer. And then you, then your very next call is to find an Correct. attorney. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> yeah. Whether you have an attorney or not is irrelevant. So the answer is that you need to have that attorney stated right. that you were going to have that person and then you can go find them. You don't have to have that attorney. That's your future attorney. That's your your potential attorney that will be there. But well done on that for you. Um, that is the right answer. And unfortunately, a lot of people got themselves into a ton of hot water because yep. they not do exactly what you just did. Um, now, I had, I had every intention of being cooperative. I was not going to, although I had advice and uh, stern advice and warnings from multiple uh, friends and followers and blog followers uh, uh, that have, you know, 30, 40 years in law enforcement, every one of them saying, do not do the interview. Do not, you don't have to, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm telling you, there's no, there's no upside. Don't do it. I have one problem though. I'm as just as curious about what they were doing as they were about what I was doing. And this is always the same problem, by the way, this is the same thing for guys who deal drugs. <laughs> they have the same curiosity. What do they know about me? And well, my curiosity was from a journalistic standpoint. And in sure. fact, when, when, my, when the interview ultimately finally happened, I told, it was the first thing I told him, I said, the, and I looked at my attorney, I said, this guy right here told me not to do this. Okay. I am here for one reason, one reason only. I said, I'm going to ask you as many questions as you ask me. Let's rock. And, um, now, was now, now we have to, now we have to get to we have to go through the journey a little bit, how we got there, because uh, obviously my attorney did contact them. We set up a, a voluntary cooperative time, you know, mutually agreed upon date that worked in our schedules for me to go down to the uh, uh, Raleigh area uh, field office here for the FBI. And when we arrived, we got there about 15 minutes early. Uh, it was Agent Doss and Agent Noyes that met us at the door after we went through the security gates and all of that. And immediately after we walk in the door, they said, hey, guys, uh, thanks for coming. Look, we, we may have a problem. We may not be able to do this interview today. Uh, uh, if you guys just go ahead and sit here in the lobby, we'll be back in about uh, we'll be back in about five or 10 minutes um, and let you know. But something has come up and we may have to reschedule. So we sat down, they disappeared behind another, you know, security door into the back. And I looked at my attorney and I go, man, what's going on? So I'm, the only thing I think I could think of, man, there's must've been something happened today. I'm, I mean, we're, we're, is it another nine 11 going on? Is there another attack going somewhere? It, what, what's going on? And, and he goes, no, this is about you. This is what my attorney said. And I went, what? He goes, oh yeah. He said, this is, this is about you. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I said, they may just come through that door and arrest you right now. And I went, how did you get that from what they were saying? And they were eminently friendly. I mean, there was nothing in their demeanor or their, their body language that gave away anything like that. But it ended up taking them about a half hour before they came back through the locked doors. And when they came out here, hey, guys, we're we are so sorry. Here's the deal. We got a call from Washington. They knew that your interview was coming up today. But because of your status as a journalist, we have to get permission in order to do this questioning, we can't question a member of the press without permission from the U S attorney's office. And I'm like, 
really? I didn't know that that law existed. Sure enough, I looked it up as soon as I got home, and there's a uh, yeah, it's DOJ policy that they have to do that. So thank God, yeah, yeah, it, it's 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 in the uh, U.S. Code, and uh, and that's exactly the case. The FBI or any other federal investigative unit cannot interview a member of the press without express written permission from the U.S. Attorney General's office itself. So it took a little bit over a month before that came down. Uh, we finally did the interview in October. Uh, we it was rescheduled. We negotiated. My attorney negotiated a, a proper agreement from them that at no time, uh, under any circumstances, could anything that I said in that interview be used against me in court. Should they take me? Uh, should they decide to file charges against me? Unless I perjured myself. Well, I had nothing to hide and nothing to perjure myself about. So I said, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, the only thing that really changed from the negotiated first uh, um, abandoned uh, interview was that they had given me permission to record the interview myself in the first one. The second one, as stated in the proffer agreement, was that I could not record it. Yeah, that's and, and the first thing that I did after telling them that I was there to ask them as many questions as uh, they were going to ask me, and I said, even though I'd already signed the agreement, I want to record this meeting. And we got off to a bad start right then. <laughs> uh, they were not happy with the fact that I wanted to record it. And we got into a, a pretty heated debate about it. And finally, my attorney said, are you, he said, Steve, have you changed your mind? Do you, are, are you, if you, if you're not allowed to record this, are, are you wanting to abandon this, uh, this session? And I said, no, I, I said, I, I just want it on the record. You know, the cameras were, embedded in the wall up, you know, above there. And, and of course they were making the point it's being recorded. I said, yeah, but it may be being recorded, but I have no assurance that what you're going to do with that recording. And, and I said, I don't understand. And then they gave the line about, well, you know, we do investigative work, we do undercover work and we can't have our images, you know, and we know you being a journalist, you plan on using this. And I said, no, I said, I will sign an agreement with you. I said, I, I said, Write it out on your notepad right there. I will I will sign it right here that I will not use this video recording uh, in a story. It will not be published, and it will only be for my backup And should I ever go to trial over this thing. And he said, he said, no, nope, we won't do it either. It's either no recording or no uh, no interview. And, and I said, all right. I said, well, let's go. Let's do this thing. All right. That's a good place. We're going to take a quick pause here and uh, we're going to regroup for one second. And then we're going to hear about what was in this interview, because I'm now very interested in how an adversarial interview got started off. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.